the Reformation celebration. Uh, next Saturday, that is October the 31st, six days from today, Protestant Christians worldwide will celebrate the 503rd birthday of the beginning of this great Reformation in which we are still today. October the 31st, 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the doors of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that moment sparked a worldwide Reformation. Today we're going to look back one and a half thousand years ago to learn about and be inspired by the man who seeded this very Reformation. I believe it's really important for us to know our heritage. There's, a, there's something powerful in knowing your lineage, knowing where you come from. Because if we know where we come from, we know upon whose shoulders we stand. And we have the security and the confidence of knowing, uh, you know, where we spring forth. And we also know confidently we can preach the very message we know we came from and that, we was, that was established before us. So I wanted to just take a moment and give you a short little history as to how we got to where we are at today as a church. Well, we have Jesus 2,000 years ago who had His 12 disciples, the apostles, one, of course, who fell away and they chose another. But that era right there, right after Jesus left to be with the Father, that era right there in history is known as the apostolic age. The apostolic age. And this is where we have men who went about preaching the gospel around the known world and establishing churches and then being bishops over those churches. These men, as we know them, are Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, these men, however, as they were raising up churches, they were also discipling other men. The men that they were discipling, we happen to know them too. But those men took over the churches from the original apostles. We have these men's names. We have these men's histories. We have these men's writings. We have their books, their papers, their theses, as they understood the gospel from the very disciples that Jesus trained. In this era, right after the Apostolic age is what is known as the early church fathers. The early church fathers. That's in the first century and the second century. These were people like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and Justin Martyr. Fascinating to read these people's works. You can just simply Google it. You'll find them. But to understand the gospel through their eyes is to understand the gospel the way the apostles preached the gospel. And uh, Wednesday nights, we have what we call a midweek discipleship, and we study these men's lives, and we study their doctrine, and we study their works also. Not all of them, but many of them. Then after the early church fathers, we have the third age, which is called the pre-Reformation. The pre-Reformation are the men that came out of the churches these early church fathers built, established, and taught. And these people are men like... Augustine of Hippo, John Wycliffe, and Jan Hus. This is the pre-Reformation era. Today, we're looking at Augustine of Hippo, who comes from this era. 
this era called the Pre-Reformation Age. A thousand years later, we have the actual Reformation sparked by Martin Luther, as we spoke about last week. He's a real, um, he's a real abrasive man. Uh, he used what they called bathroom talk. <laughs> he was extremely confrontive. And uh, actually, I'll read you something. His response to all the people that criticized him for having um, those, I mean, the language that he used is sometimes kind of shocking. Uh, but as you read him, you realize that he was on a mission. He was on a mission from God. And here he says, I own that I am more vehement, vehement than I ought to be. But I have to do with men who blaspheme the truth. I have to do with human wolves. He says, even the most phlegmatic spirit in my circumstances might well speak with thunderbolts. Much more I am who, are, who am uh, choleric by nature and possess a temper easily apt to exceed the bounds of moderation. But I ask you, think about Christ. Was He a reviler when He called the Jews a perverse nation? Was He a reviler when He called them adulterous, when He called them snakes? hypocrites and children of Satan. Well, what do you think about the Apostle Paul? This is Luther speaking. What do you think about the Apostle Paul? Was he abrasive when he, when he termed the enemies of the gospel dogs and seducers? Paul, who in the 13th chapter of Acts, inveighs against the false prophet in this manner. Oh, full of subtlety and all malice, you child of Satan, you enemy of all righteousness. He says, I see all the persons demand of me moderation, and especially those of my adversaries who least exhibit it. I too, I, if I am too warm, I am at least open and frank, in which respect I excel those who always smile, but then murder. One of the uh, leading authorities, professors on Luther, he comments this. He says, because of Luther's foul mouth, his hot temper and his abrasive personality. Luther would look in vain for a chair of theology at Harvard in this day and age. With its spice and its language, he could also move to crudity and hatefulness. And even his longtime friend, Melanchthon, did not hesitate to mention Luther's sharp tongue and heated temper even at his funeral. So here we have a man that is known for being very abrasive and very strong, but God used a man with this uh, temperament to spark what is known as the Reformation. And with him, we see men like William Tyndale and John Calvin. So we have the apostolic age. They raised up these disciples under them, under the early as the, uh, known as the early church fathers. The early church fathers raised up people in the pre-Reformation the pre people in the pre-Reformation seeded what we find in Luther, the doctrine we see them teach in Tyndale and in Calvin. And then from the Reformation, we have the fifth era, which is called the modern church era. And in the modern church era, they come out of Luther and Tyndale and Calvin. And these people are the Puritans. Puritans were, in fact, the people from Europe who moved to the states, as we know our nation, in the very beginning, in search of being able to serve God freely. These Puritans named George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and even 
the El Moody at the time. And from them, here we get into the sixth era of the church, which is known as the post-modern church. And the question is, what kind of legacy are we going to leave as the post-modern church? In order to find our roots, we have to dig deep into history and we have to find out what God did in and through certain people that are part of our lineage, our heritage, our family line, our church family tree. And so <clears throat> we have to look at this man by the name Augustine. We have to look at his life because of what we can learn from his or from the events of his life. And I think we want to be helpful today as we do look at that. We don't want just a history lesson, but we want to see how God worked, what God did, how God did it. And it's important for us to learn what it means to be free from loving sin. Because that is the very story of Augustine's life. How can a person, you and I, be free from the very love that we have, that love relationship we have with the flesh, that love relationship that we have with the world? How can we be free of that? You and I, we've seen many people, and I've been in the ministry for many years, over 20 years, and I've seen many people get free from, let's say, a drug. And they're so excited they're free from it. But what they're not free from is the love thereof. They might be free from using it, but they're not free from the, they're not free from the love of its environment and its people. And, its, and they can never be free from it until they are free from loving it. And here is the story of Augustine of Hippo being freed by God's power from the love of unrighteousness and sin. We're also going to learn how to overcome the very past failures this love for sin has caused in our lives. How we can, be over, how we can overcome the very past and history in our lives, our bad decisions that's attempting to destroy us even in this day. So let's just talk for a moment about Augustine the man. Augustine shaped the history of the Christian church and his influence in the Western world is simply staggering. It's, it's almost like nobody hears about him anymore, yet all of the modern ages of Christendom is built upon this man's teachings in a very big way. Benjamin Warfield said of Augustine, and I quote, the whole development of Western life in all its phases, was powerfully affected by his teachings. It's because Augustine was a master in philosophy, a master in theology, he was a master in psychology, he was an author, a poet, and an orator. There are libraries that exist that only host commentaries on his books. Uh, and biographies of his life. The publisher of Christian History magazine simply says of him, after Jesus, and I quote, after Jesus and the Apostle Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. It's quite something to be said of an individual. The fascinating thing about Augustine is that 
his influence flows into radically opposing religious movements. Uh, he is viewed as one of the greatest fathers of the Roman Catholic Church. If you ask any Catholic, Augustine of Hippo, oh, he's our church father. While at the same time, Augustine is the one who gave us the Reformation that broke away from the now Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther was uh, originally an Augustinian monk. He studied the works of Augustine and then came to the revelations that he did. John Calvin uh, quotes Augustine more than any other theologian. But the greatest evidence that we have that Augustine was the one who seeded this reformation upon whose shoulders we now stand uh, is due to the fact that his doctrine of grace, Augustine's understanding of grace alone, eventually triumphed over Pelagianism and became the message of the entire reformation and what it was built upon and still stands on. So for this next section, I would love for you, in your imaginations, to come with me to a small town on the very northern coast of Africa. Augustine was an African, born and raised in the town Thagast. The year was 354 after Christ. We are in the fourth century. On November the 13th, Augustine is born to a pagan family. Augustine writes this about his family. As I grew into manhood, I was inflamed with desire for an excessive amount of hell's pleasures. My family made no effort to save me from my fall. Their only, or their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech and how to persuade others by my words. In other words, his parents, like many parents today, are predominantly interested in their child's education. He says, My father took no trouble at all to see how I was growing in your sight, O God, or whether I was chaste or not. He cared only that I should have a fertile tongue. They sent him to college for rhetoric. That was their dream for their son. Ready to leave home to go to college, his mother at this point seemingly more God-fearing now. His mother warned him of one thing, and that is to not commit fornication. And above all else, Augustine, she said, do not seduce another man's wife. She, of course, started seeing the direction her son was going into. Augustine later wrote this. He said, and I quote, I went to Carthage. It's college. This is after his early education. Carthage was in Europe. <clears throat> I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. I was willing to steal, and steal I did, although I was not compelled by any lack. I was at the top of the school in rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior, my superior status and swollen in conceit. There in Carthage, drunk with sexual lust, he took for himself a concubine and had her live with him for 15 years. She also gave birth to a son, a deitus. Augustine had a long road 
on his spiritual travel to the Lord. And the road he traveled is very revealing to us as to how God works. And this is what we're looking at today. Some Christian historians mark that he had three different major conversions in his life. And there was a time he sent his concubine away with her son. And um, she committed that she will never again love another man. And he wept knowing that the very next day he will have another concubine because it was an impossibility for him to live chaste. It was an impossibility for him to leave the very sin that he loved so much. He lived a reckless, sexually extravagant, and wasteful life until his early 30s, after which he came to his final conversion and then lived celibate for the next 40 years as a monk in Hippo. So what we have here is a man who was in absolute bondage to sexual sin and to sexual perversion, who then was delivered by the grace of God and was used by God to become the most influential Christian outside of the Bible ever. And if ever God redeemed sexual perversion, here is a wonderful example thereof. And if ever God can use somebody who has ever given to the sin that they couldn't free themselves from, yet still use them in a fantastic and mighty way, here is a great example. Augustine. At age 32, Augustine and his friend, Alypius, were having a conversation about this incredible sacrifice that this monk by the name Anthony, uh, the sacrifice that he lived with, and because he lived at an extremely high level of purity, and he loved the things of God, and Anthony just loved righteousness, and he hated sin. And here's Augustine and his friend Alypius sitting having a conversation of what it took to be that separated unto God as this monk that they honored and admired. And the conversation was on the lines of that, that is actually important for a normal man to live. And Tony, I think it's a little cold in here, sorry, if you don't mind, just one, one degree. The conversation was going into the direction as to how impossible it is to live as holy as Anthony. And while they were having this conversation with his friend, Augustine experienced something taking place in his heart. His heart smote him so hard at the thought of his enslaved bondage to lust and to womanizing from which he could not free himself. And he realized this, that he was bound. He saw himself in bondage to this sin that he so loved dearly. And he compared it to people who were so free in Christ. Like that Egyptian monk Anthony. How can others be so free and love being free? Free from that bondage of sin. Well, Augustine was so bound by his love for that very sin that he just couldn't give it up and walk away from it. Why does he love the sin? They don't. Why is it that others have this power over 
their sexual desires while he was powerless, absolutely powerless, weeping, as he says bye to the one concubine, because he knows tomorrow there will be another. Why is it that he's weeping? He realizes that he is so enslaved by the love that he has for sexual pleasures and temptations. Why is it that others are free and he's a slave? Now, when we look at the life of Augustine, we don't have to just think, oh, well, you know what, I don't have a sexual problem, so, you know, this is not for me. This is the foundational principle on how we deal with every single sin in our lives. Every single sin in our lives is committed against God in this, that we loved it more than we loved God. We loved flesh, and we were committed to flesh more than we are committed to God's righteousness. We are more in love with our wrong than we are committed and in love with God's right. There is no other possible way to deal with sin without ending up in despair or in self-righteousness. Think of this quick. Watch this. If you are able to be freed from your love that you have for the flesh and the world all by yourself, you're going to end up in one or two places you're going to despair over the fact that you keep on failing. Or you're going to end up in self-righteousness thinking like, look at what I did. And I will judge everyone else for not being able to overcome their problems. Look, I did it. Why can't you? But if it's God who frees a person, you're left at one place alone. And that is humbled and grateful before God. Humbled and grateful before God for delivering me from this very thing, this very love I couldn't deliver myself from. So here is Augustine in his own words explaining his own Gethsemane that very day. Him and his friend were discussing this. Let me read it to you. He had a Gethsemane experience right here, still completely in bondage in the love that he had for his perversion, he says, There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. This is Augustine. He writes, I now found refuge in this little garden where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was, my own enemy. I was beside myself with madness. I was frantic. Overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant, I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. Have you ever seen somebody that desperate to walk away from the very sin they just simply can't give up? Maybe you have. And here he continues to explain his experience where his desires for the flesh pulled him more and more while purity was calling him louder and louder. He says, I was held back by mere trifles. They plucked at my garment 
of flesh. And they whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, we shall never be with you again forever and ever. You really going to dismiss us? And while I stood trembling at the barrier, on the other side, I could see the chaste beauty of continence in all her serene and unsullied joy. As she modestly beckoned me to come, to cross over and not to hesitate anymore, she stretched out a loving hand to welcome and embrace me. So in his explanation of the moment of deliverance was where he was pulled in by his love for the flesh, while at the same time he desired to love another called purity and constant. And he saw her as a woman on the other side of this big great gulf. He says, so I hurried back at that moment to where Olympias was sitting and as he was going to where Olypius was sitting, he was hearing children in that garden sing a song, pick it up and read, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And he's trying to think, what kind of song is that? I've never heard a game like that, pick it up and read. And he was so angered at himself that he could not let go of this temptation that was pulling at his flesh in order to go to this beautiful, what he called a woman of purity. And he rushed back to his friend, Olypius, where Olypius uh, was sitting. And in front of him was uh, Paul's epistle, Romans. And he said he grabbed it, and in silence, he said, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Quote, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels, and rivalries rather arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites Romans 13 13 14 he says and I quote I had no wish to read more and no need to do so for in that instant as I came to the end of that sentence it was though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Suddenly, I knew what I was going to do. Right after that, he was baptized by his mentor, Ambrose, on Easter of 387 after Christ in Milan. And here is the story of his final conversion. I want to delve into that because... Within there, there lies the explanation of the grace of God. And within there, when we see how the grace of God did what it did, what God did, what He did through His grace to a man so bound, we can apply that in every part of our lives where we too can find freedom. You see, His way of getting free is that a sovereign joy, a godly joy, that pure woman on the other side, the joy of her, that sovereign joy for God and for His purity and for righteousness, severed 
the root of the pleasure of sin. Love for that killed love for this. The joy of that throttled the joy of this. Grace. Sin lost its power of Augustine. Not by Augustine attacking sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just not doing this anymore. You see, that's not victory. I'm going to stop right now. I've drawn a line in the sand. That's it. I'm done with you. That's not victory. He didn't actually overcome it by fighting it. And neither can you overcome sin by fighting it. Sin lost its power over Augustine, not by Augustine attacking that sin, but rather by Augustine falling in love with what he saw on the other side of that gulf, on the other side of that river. The absolute joy within the purity and constant of God. Now, what we must know is that every sin is fought that very specific way. It doesn't matter what that sin is. It could be a sin that you're bound by. And you go like, oh, I'm not bound by any sin. Well, how about people pleasing? How about, how about the sin of having to be liked? Bound by that. You will give up anything, any standard in your life just so that you can be accepted just so that you can be celebrated, <laughs> just so that you can be loved. How about being bound by that fear of being rejected? How about being bound by anger? I mean, there are many things people are in bondage to, and they don't know how to free themselves from it. It's not just sex and drugs. It's everything in life. How about the being bound by lethargy? You know, people are. I mean, especially COVID. COVID's been horrible for people in that way. They've tasted what it's like to just stay in bed. Tasted what it's like to not have to be diligent at anything. And so, the way to break the bondage off of you off of your will for wanting the wrong thing and for willing what doesn't please God and for desiring what only the flesh wants and, 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 and absolutely being in love and affectionate towards the what the world offers. The, the way to break that is to look across and see just the joy within that purity of God. And he saw her as that beautiful woman and he saw the flesh as the love for that unrighteous one. So we must know that every single sin is fought in this very same way. And his experience here becomes our foundation for the doctrine of grace. And that is what we're learning today. To overcome a sinful bondage means you have to fight by the grace of God. There's no other possible way for you to overcome the flesh. There's no other possible way for you to overcome your love for the world, your affection towards unrighteousness. There's no possible way of overcoming it. 
except for by the grace of God. That's how we fight. We have to fight this joy with that joy. We have to fight this joy for sin and in sin with that joy that we have in righteousness. We overcome sin by fighting this pleasure in sin with that pleasure for purity and of purity. We have to fight the beauty that we see inside of the world and inside of the flesh with the beauty that we recognize inside of God and inside of His purity. There's no other possible way. That's the way the grace of God works. You don't suddenly fall out of love with the world and now I love no one. No, you fall out of love with the world because you have fallen in love with the things of God. <laughs> the only reason anybody can hate sin is because they so love the beauty of God's righteousness. So let's take a few moments and see how Augustine puzzled together the doctrine of grace after he experienced God's grace in his deliverance from this love for sin. The predominant Christian doctrine in the day when Augustine was alive comes from a man by the name Pelagian. Pelagian, who was a British bishop and he lived in, in Rome at the time. The most influential doctrine and a doctrine that we still fight today, Pelagianism. You might say, well, what is Pelagianism? Pelagianism is a Christian theology or theological position which holds that the original sin of Adam and Eve did not taint man's nature to the point where man did not have the power to free himself by sheer will. This is Pelagianism is when you get a person that says, okay, I've decided that's it, not doing it again. I'm out of sin. Why? Because I've just decided I'm done with it, man. I'm done with it. Well, that's Pelagianism. Pelagianism is when somebody ministers to you and say, you know what, you just got to make a decision. That's it. It's up to you. It's totally up to you. If you're going to live a holy, perfect, holy, perfectly holy life, it's up to you. And so Pelagius was the, uh, the, the, the basis for Catholicism, which is works. You have got to do this, you'll be saved. You've got to do that. You'll be saved. And then if you go ahead and do that, you'll also get years out of purgatory. These are the things you have to do and you'll be saved. So in other words, Pelagian believed that even though the Bible speaks of man's fall from God's grace, man still has the power, the ability to will his way out of sin, to to white-knuckle your way out of that bondage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer this thing this time. This time. This time. It's, this time it's real. This time I'm going to do it. And then, and then what happens is one of two things. First, you're going to completely dis despair because you're never going to really get free. You're going to love that thing for the rest of your life. But you're going to have to pretend like you don't forever. Yeah, well, I'm not doing it. Yeah, but you're still loving it. Yeah, well, that, that doesn't matter because I'm not doing it. Pelagius. I love it, but I'm not doing it. Pelagius. You're still the same animal, just not doing it, but you love it, and you would love to give yourself to it. Pelagius. 
So he believed that man could crawl his way out of sin all by himself to a place called divine or called human perfection. Augustine, by experience, looked at this after his conversion in that garden where, where he saw what he saw and experienced what he experienced, being so absolutely bound by that lust. Augustine looked at that Pelagius doctrine called Pelagianism, and he realized that is not true. He knew that if God did not break the sinful change that bound him, he would never be free. If God isn't going to do it, it's not going to happen. I will be bound by lust and sexual perversion for the rest of my life. I couldn't stop loving it if I tried. I love my sin. I feel bad, but I love it, knowing that when the bad feeling bad goes away a little bit, I'm going to give myself back to it. That's why he wept, sending his first concubine away, knowing that tomorrow there'll be another. Because he was bound, he was shackled by it. So he knew Pelagianism was not true. And that it would have to take God to actually love God. It would take God to desire God. It would take God to love what he sees on the other side of that river, that woman of purity that represents God's righteousness. So Pelagianism from Pelagian and Augustinianism from Augustine are two radically different views, radically different views of the human nature and the effect that the fall of Adam and Eve, original sin, had on our natures. Augustine said, Things that would drive Pelagian up the wall at the, at, in those days. Augustine would write things and Pelagian would go crazy. Like, how dare this guy say things like this? And I'll read one to you. For example, Augustine wrote, and I quote, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. <clears throat> then he says this, O holy God, when, you, when your commands are obeyed, when your commands are obeyed, it's from you that we receive the power to obey them. <laughs> when I obey you, God, I am only obeying you because you gave me the power to do so. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. I know myself. For 32 years, I couldn't give up woman. For 32 years, I couldn't stop stealing. For 32 years, I, look, I lived like a pervert. Lived like a pervert. Oh, and, and I wanted to change, but I couldn't because I loved it too much. It was impossible. I identified with it. That was me. And unless you, God, came and did what you did in me, there was, it was impossible for me to start obeying you. That's why he says, it is from you that we receive the power to obey. Let me read it again. Oh, holy God, when your, com when your commands are obeyed by somebody like me, it is from you that we receive the power to even obey them. This drove Pelagian crazy. Because, no, 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 it wasn't God who empowered you and caused you to love God. No, no, no. 
Roman Catholics, you have to learn to love God. You have to start doing the right thing. Otherwise, forget it. There's no salvation to you. None. And if you try hard enough, you can be as holy as I am. And if you work hard enough at it, you can be just as great as I am. And that's where your faith goes. Your faith is in how hard you've tried. This is the basic theological foundation upon which the whole entire Reformation stands. That we are fallen human beings, dead in our sins, haters of God, enemies of God, and that it takes the very grace of God to make us alive again, to bring us back from spiritual death, to cause us to actually love what we see on the other side of that river, on the other side of the gulf, that causes us to love that to the point where it severs our love for the world, where it destroys our desire for what we used to desire and love. It takes the very grace of God to make us want God and to empower us to live for Him instead of living for sin. Then, how does this grace of God perform this transforming work in a person's life? If this is true, how does it happen? Like at what point, do we, where do we check the box? Where do we sign up to this? I want to read to you his response to that kind of question. This is Augustine, and he's explaining. He says, during all those years of rebellion, 32 of them, where was my free will? I wasn't free. You see, Pelagianism is all about like, if you really wanted to, you could stop doing that, all right? If you really wanted to, you can stop. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if a murderer stops murdering people. If he still hates them in his heart, Jesus says he's still just as guilty. It doesn't matter that I've, okay, I decided, stop, stop it. No more lusting. Stop the lusting. Not doing it again. Poke out my eyes. But man, do I miss those days. Man, do I long for that. Jesus says if it's in the heart, it's like you've done it, right? And Pelagianism says just stop doing it. Just stop doing it. And that was, that was, the, that was the, the religion of the day. And you can do it. Come on, stop it. Otherwise, purgatory for you. Hell for you. And so, Augustine came to a truth and a reality that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> until God turns you into a new creature, like one dog is a very violent dog, another one is a very loving dog, the two natures, until God comes and He takes His grace and touches your nature and changes your nature, you're not free. Yes, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, then how about this? Stop sinning. Let's see if you can do that. See, nobody really is free while they are the old man. The old man is not free. He's bound. His will is bound by his love for the flesh. His will is bound by his love for the world. His will is bound by his love for that old man's desires. 
So Pelagian, I mean Augustinian says, during all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? I couldn't give up sex. I just couldn't. What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment? So that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He feared losing. Because when he looked to God and he looked to his love, the pleasures of sex, perverted sex, when he looked to it, he feared giving it up. That's why he said it was like drawing at his flesh saying, Are you going to leave us forever? Really, you are. He hated the idea of losing his great love. He says here, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. But you, God, drove me from them. You who are now my sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Though not the flesh and blood, you who outshine all light. Yes, you took their place. This is how he was free from his love for unrighteousness. Psalm 34, verse 8, tells us, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'd like to just say, oh, look and see just how beautiful, how beautiful the purity of God, the freedom in God's righteousness. Think of how free you can be if your love, if your heart would love the righteousness of God, that is freedom. That is freedom. Freedom in Christ is when He severs your love for the flesh and unrighteousness, sin, and the world. It's when He severs that with this sword called the love of God or the love for God. When He touches your will and He causes you to will toward another, it is my love for God that empowers me to live for God. It is, my, it is my love for my wife. It is my love for my children that allows me and empowers me and enables me to actually live for them. I mean, what is there that I wouldn't give them? Why is it that a man would live the way he lives and give his life to his children the way he does, other than the fact that his heart loves them. And so God does the same thing to you and I by his grace. And he goes, I will sever your commitment, your love, your faithfulness, and your loyalty to those, to those fleshy cravings. And you will start hating sin. Because you so desire that purity and that love that God has for you. Now, I need to end here, but I want to I ask the question that I know somebody is asking, well, Jacques, I kind of feel numb and loveless toward God. 
I know. So if it's by the grace of God that I would love God, evidently He hasn't given me the grace, so I'll just sit around and wait. I'm still addicted. I'm still stuck. I still love my sin. I feel guilty, but I love it. And uh, so I'm going to just stick around and wait until God one day goes, zap, done. Okay, God, I'm free. Are we going to sit around and wait for Him? Or is there something I can do? Well, there are many things, but I want to say this, that the more I see the beauty of God in His Word, the more affectionate I become toward Him. The more I see just how perfect He is, the more I'm drawn to Him. When I see His innocence, I mean, every one of us, we're drawn to innocence. You look at a little child and you go like, I just want to squeeze that little thing. I just want to hug that little thing. I want it to be mine. I always tell Giabella, Giabella, when I see you, I just want to eat you up. <laughs> Why do you want to do that? You're drawn to purity. Everybody's drawn to purity. But when you, when you peek into the Word of God, there's a purity there that you can't, that's, that's so desirable and attractive. And God is attractive. But not through song. Not through song. Through truth. Because we live in a generation who's in love with Jesus when the song is great. When there's a wonderful song and it touches my heart so. Oh, how I love you so. And the world, but I love you. No, you see, that love doesn't sever the love for the world. It's when you get into the truth of God, and the truth of God speaks to you about God's purity. And you are like Augustine, and you are getting pulled into the flesh, and you look across that river, and you see that beautiful, beautiful purity. And draws you and attracts you. You see, that, that truth of Him is what draws you and attracts you. So James 4 verse 6 says this, but he gives grace, but it's he who gives grace. Therefore, it says in the Bible, God is opposed to the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So two things that I can encourage you with in regards to, well, how can I stop being so unresponsive and unemotional and so numb toward God and the things of God? How can, how can I start loving God to the point where His love, my love for Him severs my love for the world and my love for the flesh? How do I get there? Well, I just want to point out two things. The first thing is peek into the truth of God. Peek into the truth of God which will reveal the purity of God and will become the attractiveness of God. You know, singing is great. But don't ever exchange that for your time in the Word of God. And secondly, when you do, it humbles you. And the Bible right here in James 4, 6 says, God gives grace. God gives this grace to who? The humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He gives grace to the humble. And when you live there, there are promises 
There are many promises from God, and I'll end with this. Jude 24, and I want to give this to you as an encouragement. Because I know every single one of us, you know, you go through a year and you go like, my gosh, you know, this year I really did drift. This year I really did grow cold. This year I really did grow distant. This year I did really say some things and think some things that I've never thought and said before. And I started questioning things I've never questioned before. And, and I feel like I've walked away from God in a, in a degree this year that I've never done before. Let me just tell you, Jude 24 says this. To those of you who have been touched by the grace of God. Now unto him, the Bible says, that is able to keep you from falling. Now he who is able to keep you from ultimately just falling away. Let me tell you folks, if you are a child of God, you are a child of God. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life and you were not even yet born. Did you know that? You are a child of God. And the Bible says He works within you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You see, Pelagianism does not stand at all. This whole idea that you can choose God doesn't stand at all. He works in us both to will, even will Him, will to walk away from the world, will to walk toward God, will to raise my hand, will to walk up front, Will to pray a sinner's prayer, whatever you think it is. It is He who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. He empowers you to even live for Him. So guess what? You're a child of God. Here's your promise. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling. You will not fall. And to present to you faultless before the presence of of His glory with exceeding joy. He presents you faultless. Well, I'm not faultless. Well, that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. The one who is your, this, your uh, substitute, the substitutionary atonement cannot be downplayed in any way. Uh, it is you are presented to God faultless. Yeah, but I just doubt it. Faultless. Yeah, but I just stumbled. Faultless. Yeah, but I just had a thought. Faultless. Thank God for His grace because it's removing that. Look at Micah 7 verse 8 and 9. The last verse. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. Thank you, God. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Thank you, God. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, you will be my light. This is a story of God's goodness. It is this goodness of God that draws men to Him. It's not the common grace of God. It's the saving grace of God. It's the sanctifying grace of God. It's the delivering grace of God that saves you completely and that is the goodness of God that draws us get into his truth you will see his purity and you will fall in love with him get into his truth you will see his glory and you will be humbled before him and when that happens he will fill you with his grace amen
Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness. We have no ability. Man cannot, man cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws them, drags them, pulls them. Jesus, you said those words. No man can come to me. There's an inability to come to Christ. There's an inability for a dead Lazarus to come out unless he's called by God to come out. And today, God, we know we have an inability against the flesh. We have an inability against, against bondage of sin. Unless it is you who call us by your grace and sever our love for the world and sever our love for unrighteousness and sin and sever our love for, this, for the flesh. Therefore, today, God, we need your grace more than ever. We need your grace more than ever. Help us look across that river. Help us look across to how beautiful you are and fall in love with your righteousness and your purity and let that grace sever the love that we have for unrighteousness in Jesus' name. Your grace is sufficient. Amen.